0: On episode 22 of the InsureTech Geek podcast, talking about one API to rule insurance with Darcy Shapiro from Cover Genius. Insure tech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives into specific technologies we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. cross-country crew today i am joining from the shores of lake michigan in the summer studio this is where i go to escape the heat of texas and evidently to escape all the uh restaurant and bar closures what the heck man back to closing stuff again are we and in the in the heat of the action bear county san antonio texas rob galbraith rob you okay
1: great james great to be with you another week our local top local health official did resign this morning yeah um, <laughs> And the bars did close at noon. I don't know why Governor Abbott didn't let it go to midnight, et cetera. But anyway, yeah, we're good. I've been home either way. So, you know, it's all good. We're making homemade pizza tonight. <laughs> yeah. So, uh,
0: you weren't planning on a yeah. big day out at the bars tonight? I was not
1: planning <laughs> on bar hopping tonight. Nope. <laughs> nope. So it's all good to me. So this is what happens when you're a dad of three it's 45. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much doesn't matter. Exactly. You're about. like, oh, They're bar closures. My day is the same. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So I'm embarrassed to say that.
0: Yeah impacts me zero uh yeah <laughs> it is. we're gonna order takeout anyway <laughs> that's yeah. right if you're in texas you know they've got a great program drizzle that's alcohol delivery to your house i think they uh, they operate in other places too but that's super convenient i used i used shipped today to get some michigan hard cider delivered to the lake house here so that was all good nice gotta have you gotta have a gotta have a drink it's friday come on so with us at the
1: beach house
0: yeah right. yeah at the beach 72 degrees, sunny, blue skies. It's great. And and with us from uh, New York, not in the city. She's in the burbs, thankfully. So she actually can go outside into her own patch of grass with her kids. That's Darcy. Darcy Shapiro, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing great. Thanks, James, for having me.
0: Oh, glad to have you on. This is definitely one of those times when you're glad you're, glad you're in the burbs, huh?
2: I am. Yeah, Yeah, much better than the (laughs) 700 square foot apartment I lived in in Manhattan for many, many years with my children.
0: Yeah, right. So how long was the commute and how long is it now?
2: So our office is in Manhattan and it takes me about an hour and a half door to door. And now it's about 10 feet from my bed to the makeshift desk that I've set up (laughs) in my bedroom. So the commute has decreased significantly.
0: Wow, 3 hours of your day is going back and forth to the office?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Holy Shamoli. That's yep. a that's a commute. I've heard of commutes, but you win, sister.
2: Welcome to New York.
0: Oh my goodness. On a train?
2: Yeah, the train is actually quite nice. It's you can spread out, sit down, do work, read the paper. Yeah, so I miss that pe- I miss that peace. Yeah, the, the quiet. Two children in my house.
0: <laughs> mm, yeah. I understand that. I had a I had a panicked thirteen year old daughter, in, this morning, who evidently we we did you know one class for summer school, and she decided to procrastinate until literally the minute it was all due. And so I was dealing with a panicked thirteen year old this morning, trying to get the assignments done. It was uh interestingly enough a computer literacy class, so I had to go in and and do a bunch of PowerPoint work with her and. I made her do like 95% of it. I just finished the last little pieces and I showed her how to do it. And she did a good job. We went through Prezi and PowerPoint, Google Slides, and of course, Word and Excel. And she she really had to learn all the major office applications. And she agreed with me that PowerPoint is still way easier than Prezi. And Prezi is a giant pain in the butt. I I tried moving all my presentations to Prezi a while ago. And I moved back to PowerPoint pretty quickly. It wasn't going to happen. So I understand having kids all up in your business all the time because it's been that way for a few months. But we're not talking about that for this show. We're going to talk about insurance technology. Uh, A reminder for all of our listeners out there that you can find out more information at insuretechgeek.com. You can subscribe to our weekly newsletter, and then you get the show notes, and you get the stuff we talk about and the link to the show. It's all in there. And, of course, you can su- subscribe to the show on any major podcast uh, subscription that you've got and get more information on that. Back to Darcy. Darcy, we love talking about insurance. We love talking about tech. But we also love talking about the people behind it. You're one of those people. So just give me a rundown. You went to a very beautiful school for undergrad, University of Notre Dame, not too far south of here. So I'm I'm about an hour drive north of, of South Bend right now.
2: Okay. In so, enemy territory in Michigan.
0: Mm, yes, but I'm Notre not. Notre Dame
2: people
0: but, would. Uh, yeah, but I don't. I, I'm not a Michigan fan, so you can just good. you can let you can let and go. And we
2: can of chat.
0: That. Yep. Exactly. I'm a, I'm a raging Texas Aggie, so okay. I okay. think we played Notre Dame one time. I think that was it. Like, <laughs> yeah. so you went. So tell me where where were you born and raised? You went to Notre Dame. You went to Fordham for law school. You know what you envision doing when you grew up, and then when you were growing up, and then what, what landed you in an Assure tech company?
2: Yeah, I'm from New York originally, born and bred around these parts. When uh, it came time to go to college, uh, my father had actually gone to Notre Dame Law School, so there was a big push. I was the last of three children, the first two who would get annoyed at me for saying this, but didn't get into Notre Dame. So I was the last great hope, uh, and I got in. And it was not really a, much of a question on whether I was going. So I did my time out in South Bend.
0: Did your time. Wow. I
2: did. South Bend, <laughs> it's it's a lovely place. It's gotten a lot nicer since I graduated. But, I mean, the school is beautiful.
0: It's Indeed. just the parts that are not the school that are not so exactly. beautiful. Exactly. Because a little
2: rough around the edges. I'm, I'm
0: class of 01 from Texas AM. So I, I remember South Bend in the late 90s, early 2000s. And it was rough around those parts. It's That's, like, And you have this, like manicured gorgeous university, right? And then literally across the street, you're like, "Oh boy, this is I mean, this, this, we're not on a campus anymore. It's a different experience." Uh, so, yeah, I've been there been there a bunch of times. That's awesome. So, you did your time in yeah, South Bend. I was
2: there around then. So, I graduated no one as well and then yep, moved back to New York. Actually, before I moved to New York, I did a stint in Australia in Sydney uh, working for a legal publishing house down there and then moved back to New York timing was fortuitous trying to find a job in New York right after September 11th. Uh, so I did some time bouncing around, not really sure what I wanted to do until I finally relented and went to law school. I was in ad sales for a period of time before then. Wow. But so, so what? you know, like every great lawyer, I had no idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> and that's how I ended up in law school.
0: So, you know, we're both class of 01 from our respective schools. When I finished undergrad, I flew up to to New York to hang out with one of my really good buddies who had taken a job there on wall street and he lived in battery park city and so he lived two blocks from the world trade center i went there august 23rd of 01 and hung out with him stayed crashed at his place had a phenomenal time in new york city and like one of his roommates who was also a fellow aggie worked in the trade center i went home you know maybe a few days later the end of August, maybe twenty eighth, twenty ninth of August. And needless to say, I started grad school right after that. A and M, and a few days later, the whole world changed. Right, nine eleven happens. The towers I was just on were no longer there. My friend couldn't get to his apartment for a month and a half. I mean, it was it was it was crazy. And I decided, of all things, to start JB Knowledge right then. Like, you know, the dot com boom had just bust. Nine eleven destroyed the rest of the economy that was left over it was a terrible time. So I'm, I I remember what a, what a, what a crazy transformational time. And certainly I had a lot of friends in grad school who were in a similar boat. They were like, well, nothing better to do. Let's go to grad school. Right. But But your dad was a lawyer. So you had, you had some family influence there.
2: I did. He had been trying to convince me for years that the law was my path and I was fighting against it. You know, obviously for not, because I ended up there. And to your point with, I think the applications were up like 50% the year that I applied because there were a lot of us that had no idea what to do with our lives and thought law school would be the way to go. Yeah. So I ended up at Fordham in, in the city in New York, graduated in 06 and, and went into private practice right away with a uh, legal defense firm, a defense firm mostly doing insurance defense work. So that's really sort of where my insurance career started. No intention whatsoever of entering into, you know, insurance defense work or any interest in working in insurance whatsoever. I really didn't even understand how policies and coverages worked and that insurance companies paid legal bills when I went to work for this uh, firm. So that was uh, uh, eye-opening for me if you will. And then after about two years in private practice, billing 2,500 hours a year and newlywed and having, you know, decided, uh, I should also say that I met my husband in law school who also was working 2,500 hours a year. We were having our first baby and kind of decided, you know, maybe it's time for one of us to take a job in-house, if you will. And so one of us will be around to at least pick our kids up and drop them off at daycare. And that's how I ended up at AIG as a claims attorney in Je- in June of 2008, which again, my timing is just impeccable because three months later was the bailout. <laughs> so I was at AIG for five years during a really interesting time period. And they were undergoing like Whoa. massive <laughs> transformation during that period.
0: That That's like a really nice way of putting things. Yeah. Um, at an interesting period. So AIG had basically taken a bunch of bets on credit default swaps, if I remember correctly. Correct. And they were on the wrong end of the bet. So they were instantly insolvent, and then the government stepped in and then backed them because if AIG would have defaulted on the payout of all those poli- of all that insurance they'd put out, it would have completely wrecked the rest of the market, right?
2: Correct. Yep. So we we had a really interesting year, you know, around that time, Occupy Wall Street, the Zuccotti Park folks were around all the time and in outside our office. And we're just, we're insurance people. We're not the credit derivative people, the financial products people that did this. They, I think they were in some office in Connecticut, They were like actually. a small group,
1: like 30, yeah, or 35 people, right? Exactly. A real small, and yeah. in Connecticut,
2: nowhere near yeah. the New York yeah. campus. And I mean, Michael Moore was having these protests that were coming up and we're getting heckled coming in and out of work. It was interesting time. We were, you know, told not to talk to the media. I'll never forget the day we're all sitting there watching our stock price just plummet. And my colleagues, because I was the new person in the team, dared me to walk out of AIG that day with a massive house plant that was in my um, boss's office because it was right around the time all the We had media camped out outside our offices. The Lehman pictures of all the people walking with their boxes out, and then my boss said, "Yeah, but tomorrow you have to bring it back; otherwise, you're not going to collect the money." And so I declined to do it. But then the bailout for AIG was announced that night, so it would have been a pretty funny picture of me walking out one day with the plant government. Walking back, me walking back in with the plant. So it's (laughs) one of my great life regrets that I didn't take the bet, but.
0: Layman was kind of a travesty because it's like someone had to go for, yeah. to, for one for everyone to realize that nobody that they, we couldn't afford to let them go. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, in retrospect, I know this isn't insure tech, but I mean, it's really an interesting part of insurance because a lot of insurance is investments, <laughs> and so you you have to worry about the market. Had the government not stepped in to backstop, it would have been an epic nuclear meltdown. I mean, it would have yeah, been Yeah,
2: for consumers. Yeah,
0: I yeah, mean- it would have been really, really, really about 500 times worse and the backstopping allowed the companies not only to recover but then pay back the money and so the government was ultimately the government was made whole (laughs) on all those loans
2: yeah and they made money on it too yeah yeah they actually turned a
0: profit on lending the money to the companies the companies survived it kept the employees on the bankrolls and then i mean it it ended up being uh, a a much better outcome than it would have otherwise yeah
2: interesting time period and so then i i ended up i've i've Done a stint at some of the big insurers, obviously. So I was at AIG for a while. I was at Liberty Mutual, actually a subsidiary of Liberty Mutual, the specialty division. Most of my career in in insurance was in specialty, specifically cyber tech media, before I moved over into insure tech. So my last stint was with the Hartford, who I'm sure you've heard of, before I came to Cover Genius. The Hartford, I was doing product development work there and worked on getting their first admitted cyber product out into the market and did portfolio management there. They were a bit late to the game on cyber. They were one of the other companies that in 2008 really got hit hard and took the TARP money. And so I think they, yeah, they were they were of cyber yeah. for a long time.
0: Yeah, well, they were that's they were really they were
2: writing cyber in every policy that they had. And so if you're not explicitly writing it, you're silently writing it, right? So yeah, so that's kind of my career path up till about two years ago. I I jumped ship from the carrier side and came over to Cover Genius to head up their insurance operations. For the Americas region.
0: Why? What, what excites you? First off, what does CoverGenius do?
2: Yeah, so CoverGenius is a global insurtech. Primarily, we're an insurance distribution platform. What we do is, as you mentioned at the beginning of this episode, we're an uh, API driven insurtech platform. We integrate with other digital partners to deliver insurance products through to those partners' customers. We pretty much work with any large digital brand that has like a shopping cart experience where we can integrate through that single API call and deliver relevant insurance products through to those customers.
0: So give us an example.
2: Okay. So our biggest partner, I mean, this kind of goes to our origin stories really. But our biggest partner to date has been booking holdings subsidiary, a rentalcars.com, their rental car aggregator platform. And uh, we can, we integrated with them. We deliver car rental insurance through. So whenever you're on, you know, one of those booking sites where you're renting your car and there's an offer of an insurance, of an insurance product being made in conjunction with that car rental, that box that's asking you if you want insurance, that's us. That's what we do. That's the most simple way to explain it. And it's probably, you know, the easiest sort of example for people to understand they're used to that sort of in the travel field, insuring trips that you book online. But our philosophy is that we can pretty much offer those protection products through any sort of digital experience where there's a shopping cart involved and a relevant insurance product offering makes sense in conjunction with the underlying product.
0: You know, rental insurance is something that the rental car companies themselves make a boatload of money on. They strongly encourage consumers to not buy third-party insurance policies because they say, well, then you got to go file a claim and it's a separate company. If you buy it from us, then you don't have any deductible and there's no hassle. And I've, I've been through this pitch because you know I, I have an American Express Platinum card, so when I reserve it. As long as you don't get a, by the way, don't ever get a Tahoe or a Suburban. Those aren't covered. You got to get, you know, mid size SUVs are down. Don't go so and get full size. If you, that, that happened to a friend of mine. He, he had a problem. It also
2: doesn't cover car rentals in Australia, which I learned mm. the hard way. Yeah. So <laughs> you do have to read the fine print.
0: Yeah, you got to read the fine print on the that rental insurance. But, you know, so I don't ever, I, I always decline everything because my credit card covers it. But there's a lot of money to be made. And I'm guessing y'all can sell it for cheaper than the rental car companies are selling their add on insurance.
2: Yep, that's exactly right. And we're we're getting there, we're getting the first bite of the Apple because now as you know customer consumers are are booking their trips online more and more, where they are making the offer when they're booking their trip. Yeah. It becomes sort of that natural, yeah, sure. I'll click it. That's relevant to me. So
0: you're 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 also selling travel insurance on on Airfare? Yes.
2: So we do we also have some travel insurance part partners. Um, e Traveli is one of our big partners they're based out of Europe. They have a number of brands, Go Gate is one of them that you might have known here in the US. So we we do offer travel insurance packages as well, you know, but again, travel is one business vertical that we work in. We work across a number of different business verticals now to provide those protection products.
0: So in lay terms, you're kind of like a broker and that you're you you are you are interfacing with the end consumer and you're arranging for insurance to be sold to them right in in, in a way so walk walk me through the legal structure of your organization you guys don't actually take and, and write any of the paper right you're working with existing markets
2: no i mean we're set up as a digital mga model
0: yeah it's- Okay.
2: Depending on which jurisdiction we're in, because we're a global company and we operate in, you know, 60 plus countries as a licensed entity in 60 plus countries, it depends on the specific regulations in each of those countries as to how exactly we're organized. But taking the U.S. as an example, you know, we're a licensed agency. We call ourselves a digital MGA because that's effectively what we get is, you know, that binding. Sometimes we get claims authority et cetera, through our agency contracts. And we have licenses in both A A&H and H and P and C and some surplus lines licenses as well. So that we can really, you know, deliver pretty much any product that might be relevant to a partner's customers through through our API.
1: Awesome. Rob? Yeah, Darcy, it's so fascinating. So I was fortunate enough to be in Sydney, Australia in February, and I met Chris Bailey, who's a co-founder and chief innovation officer of Cover Genius. And that was actually, quite honestly, the first time I'd heard of Cover Genius and just kind of hearing him kind of explain this unique business model and approach is just something I had never thought about. So it, it actually was a bit uh, mind bending. So maybe you can just talk a little bit more. Like I, I I'm really fascinated by kind of where you guys sit right, in the value chain, who, who comes to you or how do you decide, like, is this something where you look at an opportunity and say, Hey, we're going to work with right. That rental car company or that airline or whatnot. And this real estate there is, is there. They want to make this part of this experience. You know, Okay. You know, which carrier partner wants to have that, Contract or have that space, or you know, do you go to the insurance company first, and they say this is how I want to distribute? It. Or maybe you can just kind of walk us through, like, because clearly you're bringing multiple sides together here. But I'm just kind of curious, a little behind the scenes of how does that work? And maybe it's different for each deal you do. I'm I'm really curious.
2: Well, the short answer is yes um, <laughs> to all of that,
1: <laughs>
2: which I know doesn't make complete sense, but the point is we we operate in all of those manners, right? So. You know, just kind of giving our origin story, our founders were had actually founded an online travel agency. And when they were trying to get insurance products to offer through with their travel products, what they were running into this issue, which is insurance people understand this completely, which is that everywhere they went to try to, they were trying to find one solution to offer all of their customers that are coming online from everywhere in the world, right? And there's no such thing as one insurance policy that you can sell to everybody in the world to cover anything. And so even so, even when they were working to try to find a carrier that could help them, even with the global carriers, their countries have different appetites. Their countries often operate really siloed as like separate corporations that don't talk to each other. And so it, it was just a minefield for them to have to navigate that. And they thought to themselves, Hey, if, you know, if we're having this issue just in travel, which is a pretty mature space and, in, in, you know, in terms of the digital insurance marketplace, if we're having these issues, there's just, there's so much opportunity here because there's gotta be a lot of other digital brands out there that could benefit from having protection products sold in conjunction with their core product set that aren't getting access to those products in such a way that it serves all of their customers. So they really set out to prove the proposition, again, in this rental car space, which they did. They ran around the world. They got compliant operations in place, partnerships, licensing, et cetera, product with different insurance carriers. You know, they established the, the office in London as a means of, you know, getting, tapping really into the Lloyd's market there, obviously, for obvious reasons. And, you know, the better part of the first two years of the company was that journey and they became profit positive. Within, I think it was two and a half years. So they really proved it out, and and that's when you know the decision was made to invest back into the technology and create this product agnostic technology, which is what XCover, which is our platform today. To the question of like how we bring those together, how where our vision is on on those sort of untapped opportunities, what we tried to do was think about, you know, what are the types of digital players, you know, as you might have called them e-commerce brands before, that sell products that would benefit from a protection product being attached to it. So, you know, retail is an obvious one, you know, in you have these large retailers that are already selling warranty products. And again, that's a cash cow in, in the U.S., But the interesting thing is, you know, warranty is insurance in other markets. And so if, you know, one of these large retailers wants to expand into Europe, the deal that they have with unnamed large company in the U.S. is not going to suffice because they're not going to be able to serve the, the type of product that's compliant in the European market. So that's, you know, one example. Another place is logistics. So with the parcels being shipped, I mean, obviously now more than ever, people are ordering stuff online, offering that protection when people are shipping their items. That's a, another area where, again, um Here, it may not be insurance sometimes, sometimes it is, it's a a minefield, marine cargo anyway. But, you know, you want to be able to get that sort of global solution in place, which some of the legacy carriers can't do. And then, you know, from the perspective of how we partner with these folks, it's, we have business development teams that come from the industry who understand what the challenges are and understand what the customer needs are of our partners' customers. And then we also um, have an insurance team, which is pretty cool at an insure tech because a lot of insure techs don't focus too much on insurance, as I'm sure you guys know. And it's our insurance team that's also, you know, understands what the product landscape is, the insurance product landscape is. Who are brainstorming with our sales team about, hey, what can we do to deliver value here? What are what are products that would work? And the really cool thing. Is that since I've been at Cover Genius in the beginning, it was, you know, to your point, you didn't know who Cover Genius was. Are we policy genius? Are we cover wallet or who are we, right? I mean, we were not found in this country. So it was, you know, two years ago when we established the US office, it was just trying to get people to listen to us and, and understand who we were. Now, you know, two years later, we have really large insurers coming to us saying, We love your technology, we have this partner that already that, you know, we're working with and they're global and we can help them here, but we can't help them in certain markets or we, our technology is not up to snuff and we can help them on this one product, but not not others. And so they're looking to us to problem solve in that way. So that's a really long winded answer to yes, which was the original answer is that we work with everybody and, and we are, we have partners on both sides and, the way I see it, we're stewards of our our digital partners' brands, while we're stewards of our insurance partners' balance sheets and brands as well. Sometimes, but you know, we take that responsibility really seriously.
1: I love that story, Darcy. I love the the fact that the founders were not in insurance, right, and trying to do something totally different, but then insurance happened to be part of that value proposition, and they couldn't find a partner, right? That met their needs. And so they just started their own company to fill that void and then kind of started looking around and realizing, Hey, it wasn't just us in the travel side that had that need, right? There's a whole bunch of other spaces that have that need. So that's just an awesome origin story and it's just amazing your growth. So thanks for sharing. James?
0: Yeah. Being a digital MGA is a pretty popular route right now for InsurTechs and potentially for a few different reasons, largely because, you know, being a carrier requires so much capital, right? So as, as I've gotten to know more and more and more InsurTechs, that seems to be a fairly popular model. You You definitely, your company, picked a challenging road because you're covering 60 countries. I mean, just the regulatory burdens alone in the United States mind-boggle me, because you have 50 insurance commissioners with 50 different rules. And then on top of that, you're jumping into the deep end in 60 countries and then you say, of course, your website says all lines. It didn't say some lines. It says all lines. Does all lines mean really all lines? Like, are you, are you legitimately writing business in all lines of insurance?
2: So right now, no. I mean, frankly, no. The point is, is that with our technology, we can because the technology is flexible and it's again, product agnostic, like the initial product that was built was specifically designed for rental car insurance. And then when they proved that model out, they said, well, wait a minute, you know, why would we constrain ourselves and have to build different APIs for, you know, each different product when there are a myriad number of products? So it was designed to be flexible. It was designed to be customizable in terms of the product lines that we are writing we do operate globally we have product insurance out there which is more commonly known as warranty here as uh, i was discussing although there can be insurance elements to it you know we just launched with ebay which is was really exciting partnership for our company to to launch that insurance you know we have event insurance we are doing travel insurance we have we actually have believe it or not personal lines auto policies through integration with a large dealer management system company here in the U.S. called Automatrix. So the point being that, and, and I should preface that by saying, you know, we really established our U.S. footprint two years ago. Two years ago exactly was when the U, the New York office was founded. I was the second hire. Again, I think it's a good sign when the second hire is the insurance lead in in an insure tech company. Because I think they realized, you know, this is is not the place to mess around with things. (laughs) Like, you got to get it right. And so let's hire the lawyer, the compliance-minded lawyer who understands completely coverage stuff so that we don't get in trouble, you know, in an ideal world, right? So, and then we built out an insurance team here. And so the amount of growth that we've just done in the U.S. over the last two years is just unbelievable that we have uh, as many products coming online as we do stateside, especially considering that the first year was pretty much just getting all the licensing in place. I mean, as you know, again, 50 states takes a while to do that stuff. So we were out there kind of evangelizing during that time period about our capabilities because we knew what they were elsewhere. And, and now we're up and running and it's really cool. It's definitely the most exciting point of my career, believe it or not, coming from three large carriers before this.
0: Yeah, well, I, I believe it. I mean, you're creating this almost interfaceless middleware that's taking care of you because, know, you know, that's when the API, APIs are invisible to the end person using it, right? I mean, you're, you're you're really receiving data. You're doing a lot of stuff in the background and then pushing data back out. But no one ever knows it's you. Uh yep. yeah, and, and so you're like uh the commercial for was it for 3M where they said you don't know our products, but you use products that use us all the time. <laughs> I think yeah. it was their their slogan was something around that and that would really line up well with with what you have described and what this sounds like. You had an interesting product on there for claim payments, and it looks like you're now trying to act as a middleware layer between other insure techs and getting claim payments out as well. So you're actually an insure tech potentially servicing other insure techs?
2: Well, no, that's actually part of, so our X cover platform is a full stack platform. It has several different modules in it. Typically speaking, because we're, we're, our focus is B2B sales. You know, we, we integrate with this business partner of ours, and then we do everything full stack from, from soup to nuts. So the X cover is capable of the quote and bind functions. It has policy admin, there are interfaces for, for even for customer policy admin through our X cover. And then we have X claim. We actually have um, licensed claims folks too, as well. And then X pay, which is, is what you're referring to, which is the payment function of the technology, which enables us to deliver pretty much, you know, instant payments into any sort of digital banking apparatus, whether it's a bank account or gift cards or whatever, you know, so so you have
0: you have licensed claims adjusters, and you're we doing do. and you're and you're, yep. do, and you're doing all the claims adjudication so yourself.
2: We are, yeah. So for our live U.S. business, it's going through our own claims. We have, so we have you know tpa authority that we've gotten from our underwriting partners
0: so you didn't partner with the tpa you decided to go ahead and tackle that yourself
2: not for uh i mean look that won't always be the case I'll, i'll you know be pretty candid about this as a former claims counsel there are claims that we do not want to touch the claims that we want to touch are the ones that are that our technology really services well so that our high frequency low touch where you know they're Pretty much, you want to get that payment out pretty quickly, assessment is light, but that costs companies insurance companies as well, tons of money and to be able to you know streamline that process as part of this makes us an, you know also an attractive partner for our insurance partners hmm. cuts down on those costs
1: right, Rob. So Darcy, what I love about this conversation is Cover Genius is the kind of insure tech that makes my head hurt. Like I have to think really hard and kind of think about it, right? Because it is different. It's not the way that we're used to doing things, right? And, and so I always love those. There's certainly ones that say, hey, we kind of do insurance the way it's supposed to be done and the big guys can't execute or whatever. But you know, this is kind of turning a little bit on its side, right? And it makes you think about it in a new and different way. So you just kind of wrapping up the the conversation here and I know we want to get a a, a bit to the the weekly news which we'd like to do in this uh, podcast, but What's next for Cover Genius? I mean, you kind of talked about your growth. You talked about obviously the expansion in the states, and you know, two years in. So yeah, I'm just curious, both here in the states and globally, where are you guys hoping to go in the next three to five years?
2: Yeah, I mean, so we have some pretty aggressive growth plans. We've been, you know, growing at a clip and using our own capital to fund things. We've taken on pretty minimal investor capital, so which is which is great that we, we can pursue the things that we want to pursue. And, and um, I think the goal now is really more product diversification, you know, which, as I mentioned, we're already on the path to do, you know, we started sort of in that travel sector and we've really done a great job diversifying since then. I had, I wish that I could talk about some of the things that are on the horizon that will be announced in the next two to three months, because, We've got some really big partnerships that are going to be announced shortly. I think, you know, for us in the States, particularly, one of the things that we've learned about, you know, quote unquote, like disrupting the insurance industry is that disruption um, happens best when you sort of play nicely and play from within. So we've really like met with and are partnering with some really engaged, huge, huge global carriers who love what we do. And know that there are things that we do really well that they can't do really well, that also know that there are things that they do well. And, uh, you know, the claims, complex claims is the perfect example of that, you know, sort of let's let's all take a step back and, and, you know, appreciate each other's the gifts that we all bring to the table. And let's, you know, let's really make something together that focuses on the customer. So yeah, so it'll be product diversification, some, again, some, some really exciting partnerships on both the insurance side and on the digital partner side that we're looking to just expand and grow and, and keeping that. Sort of solution that can work with everybody. We want to be friends with everybody.
1: That's awesome. You want to be the popular girl? Cool. I got it. <laughs> so that's awesome. Thanks for sharing, Darcy. James, you want to get into a bit of news? Sure. Yeah. Maybe? I mean,
0: there's there's uh, always interesting stuff going on in the in the insurance space, in the insure tech space, and in fintech. And it's kind of hard to separate all of these. There's an update today because we did report on this recently. That the updated lemonade IPO filing indicates this is uh, indicates a down round, and typically, and, and again, I, I'm a I'm a bootstrapped uh, you know insure tech guy. I like I like we like to, to to not not raise money, and this is one of the reasons why. Because when you raise another round and it's at a lower valuation, that's called a down round. For those of you who don't don't play in that space, and down rounds are typically not very good because your existing cap table gets crushed a bit, and people. In particular, founders tend to get uh, tend to get hurt a good bit in down rounds on the valuation of their stock. And so this was a, a Form S-1A that was filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission. The By the way, the ticker is going to be LMND on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, the updated filing included the expected price per share, which has been pegged at 23 to $26 a share, which would be a lower valuation. Now we're seeing, again, this is a SoftBank. Backed company, and we're seeing uh, valuation cuts uh, across the board at softbank investments. Of course, these Softbank has really pumped values on a lot of these companies. The, that this would value the company at one point four billion, which is a pretty big decrease. The last funding round was reported at a two billion dollar valuation. So this is a six hundred million dollar haircut on the valuation for lemonade. So this is a it's interesting remember they they had gross written premiums of 116 million in 2019 and uh they're still seeking a valuation of 1.4 billion on 116 million of GWP with top line revenue of 67 million uh so that's a That's still a very high valuation when you when you kind of are looking at what any other insurance company is valued or what kind of what any other business is valued, either as a multiple EBITDA, multiple gross written premium or a multiple of revenue, whatever you, whatever number you want to look at, there's still, it's still a fairly high valuation. So I would be interested in, uh, in hearing your thoughts on this, Rob.
1: Yeah. So I will confess, I've seen, of course, lots of chatter out there among uh, friends and some people have done some very, very detailed analysis on the, the filings and valuations and lots of speculation about purchasing the stock and at what price <laughs> after the fall they would purchase it. Right when it 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 starts trading, I have not done any of those digging. So so I, I will mostly reserve judgment. I I will say simply from my personal experience. You know, Lemonade obviously started with renters. They've got homeowners and in, insurance as well. That in my prior role at USI, I was responsible for for renters underwriting and um, saw some of the performance of the renters line there and the big reason to write renters was that 70 plus percent converted to a homeowner, a policy. And then by having that property, uh, the auto was stickier. Right. And, and so renters by itself wasn't necessarily, you know, a great book of business. And so, you know, obviously there is a homeowner's part to, to lemonade. They don't have the auto part. Right. So that that's, you know, I, I do hope to get the time to really dig through it, but, but that's the part that I would kind of look at. And I will also tell you that, you know, the retention isn't there relative to to, to auto and, and home like the other personal lines. I think again, I'm remembering off the top of my head, so I don't quote me on this. But you know, typically only about a, a two-thirds of the people are going to retain, and this is just again based on kind of my my experience. Two-thirds of the people are going to retain every year. And So every three years, your book kind of turns over on the renter side, which is much faster than the the auto or home side so you know i i I love the innovation and I love what they've done. It definitely was a a, a space that was ripe for disruption because you no know, large carrier really spent a, a ton of time really invested in the renter space and now you're seeing a lot more like Jetty and others on toggle from farmers and others says you know some interesting work being done in the renter space but i I do worry about that valuation and I worry about you know has lemonade matured enough as an insurance carrier, I had a lot of high hopes for them. And obviously right, they may or may not be dictating the timing. There's lots going on with coronavirus and all that. So lots of caveats I'm throwing out left and right about the uh, exact timing of this IPO. But yeah, I do kind of wonder about the future and, and where things will go. So yeah. there's lots to read out there if uh, this is uh, interesting. Uh, I want to pivot real quick. Because I actually have uh, a bit of personal news I want to share, and then I wanted to, to kind of throw something out for both uh, James and, and Darcy to comment on. So, you know, this is my, my hum- humble brag for the week, I guess. I got word last night that the first foreign language translation of my book, The End of Insurance, as we know it, has now been completed nice um, by Ali Reza and iman in Iran uh, they have translated into Farsi uh, that is not the first language I would have guessed if I had a betting pool of, of what language my book would be translated in but I want to thank both of those gentlemen for their their passion and dedication it's it's a process that's taken months and so through this translation I'm Hoping that that other insurance professionals in the Middle East, in Iran, and, and those other countries that speak Farsi will benefit from that. And so, just the fact that you know people are taking the time to, to go through that strenuous effort, just hats off to them. And uh, you know, I'm super humble through their efforts, and really excited about that. And the other thing I wanted to mention is we actually have a new uh, Insurance Nerds book. Uh, so James, you and I talked to Brian Falchek last month. Um, about his new book uh, the future of insurance from disruption to evolution so he actually had a book launch party on tuesday the book is now live for those that might be interested in finding out so he had a great kind of facebook live virtual party and uh, did a a great q a kind of talk through some of those use cases with top insurers talking about their innovation so some some great book news there and then i don't know how this missed my radar so maybe Darcy, you were on top of this or James at ITC is announced they are going virtual this week. I heard it on a call yesterday and I was like, where did it, what rock was I under? And I went to the website. I actually didn't believe it. Like, there it is. It's uh, it September to remember. So Darcy, that I'm just curious your thoughts on virtual. And then how are you guys dealing with, you know, I was on a call yesterday, a lot of great discussion about how do you sell and, and how do you create relationships and partnerships when there may not be any more live conferences or events the rest of the year?
2: Yeah, the conference, how I miss it. So yeah, the virtual conferences, and obviously I was actually scheduled to speak at a couple, a bunch of conferences this summer, at some of the digital conferences this summer, which obviously were all postponed or canceled. A couple have gone virtual and I've been on one virtual panel thus far, and I have another one coming up in a couple weeks. It's interesting. I think what it does is, is while it may limit that face-to-face interaction is important. Like let's let's face it. We are sort of at a lucky time period in the company's growth where we had developed these partnerships as I said we're 2 years in and we're kind of in implementation phase right now. So for us there was some luck involved timing-wise that i don't i don't know how i would get those partnerships off the ground without these face to face meetings these conferences these you know seeing these people over and over again going to dinner having a drink with them and then getting them getting to know each other as people so that you know you're invested in the business partnership on that side you know we're kind of focusing on the existing relationships we have in that regard because you can do existing relationships over zoom you know the new ones are harder like I, I, there's no question it's harder The virtual conferences are harder as well. Although that being said, I have noticed like there's some conference that was out in San Francisco that was like super expensive. And now for the virtual conference, it's like $99 to go. So maybe that broadens the audience because you have more people who can actually afford to go or don't have to carve out the time to fly out to San Francisco for the week, who may pop in and listen to the things that they're interested in, learn some stuff and reach out. This is what happened to me after the virtual conference that I did the panel on. I I actually had pre-recorded it didn't realize when my session was going up and woke up in the morning to about, you know, a hundred LinkedIn connections, which was a little confusing at first. And then I realized like, ah, I was the last, you know, panel on this, on this virtual conference. So I do think that there's still opportunities. I think it's worth doing how people are making money on it. I don't know.
0: They're not not Darcy. They're not, they're not, they're
2: not, not. yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Vegas is, you know, I mean, I last year to the year before just the growth in one year, in the conference. I mean, I find, I find it exhausting. So in a way I'm kind of happy that I don't have to be on my feet for three days, having 15 minute conversations one after the other, but you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting time. It's challenging for sure. In that case, though, I mean, it, it's the same way in my, my personal life. I'm not sure if you guys agree, but this sort of COVID re re-evaluation I don't want to waste my time talking to people where I know that there's not alignment because time is so precious now with, you know, you're basically going from one meeting to the next every day now, one Zoom meeting to the next. So I think it's, there's, for me, there's been a focus on really making sure that there's a synergy, you know, as we approach these, these new relationships in this yeah. challenging environment.
0: Ah, uh, there's the phrase. Oh. Oh. I was trying to avoid phrases like challenging environment. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's one of the lesser phrases that I have. Like, I've I've been doing webinars like crazy. I did three this week, and then I did like two the week before, and three the week before that. So I've done a lot of them. So I I added a slide. Here's all the phrases I will not be using. You know, these challenging times and all. Yeah, you know. I'm like I'm not gonna say it. It's 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 all it's all good. I'll say it for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fine. It's all good. I. So I've spoken at 400 conferences since 2005, and attended a lot more than that, and met some really great friends. I did a lot of business, right? I did a lot of business. I mean, got a lot of deals closed, formed a lot of new relationships, got a, made a lot of headway, built products, sold products. You know, I built a SaaS product, ran it for 12 years, got a quarter million companies using it, sold it, and 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 conferences and events played a big part in all of that. And so it's it's tough. I, I, I'd be interested just to talk to a psychologist <laughs> at some time about why everyone feels the compulsion to to load up so many video meetings every day right now. It's I'm I've noticed that it's starting to settle down a little bit, but it's almost like the absence of face to face compelled Managers who didn't trust their people to work from home to over schedule video meetings. And I don't know how to like describe this. Like I think like they're they're scheduling more of them because they're not sure everybody's working, and so they want to see them and like control their time. I don't know what is going on, but I but I, I know that there's more meetings. Here's like, of the surveying of my clients. They're having more meetings than they had when they were in person.
2: So I have a theory on this.
0: Tell me your theory because I want to hear it.
2: So I know from like our internal stuff that I think, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that you know how they always say, you know, you went on a business trip, it could have been a zoom call. And that's what you've learned now. And then a zoom call could have been an email. Well, it's it's sort of on that same vein, where, you know, if I'm sitting across from my colleague in our office, and I have questions to ask, I'll just shoot the question, you know, but now because our We are blocked into these time schedules and some of us have kids at home as well that we're homeschooling. Now you have to schedule the meeting just to ask that five minute question. And so that's what I'm finding that a lot of it is stuff that would have been answered immediately had we been in the same room with each other or, you know, or just even like we're in, when everyone's in the office and you can just pick up the phone. Now everybody's schedules are all over the place with with home and family and,
0: I kind of I kind of feel like people are a little nuttier about being called now. Like I've noticed that people apologize to me for calling me without scheduling a meeting. I'm like that's what I have a phone for. Why
2: but that's what like, I mean. Though. Like, I why are you it's apologizing? Are sensitive, though. To it now.
0: Yeah, but they're overly sensitive. At some point, it's a little ridiculous. I mean, I have a phone. I answer it. People, I'm like, why did you put this on my calendar? Just, just, just call my phone. You have my cell phone number. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me, Darcy.
2: Hey, I tell everybody, text me if you need something. Don't call.
0: So don't why do, calls, do you but... not? Do you not like? Do you hate phone calls?
2: Text me. It's fine.
0: Do you hate phone calls?
2: I do. I really hate
0: phone calls. Yeah. My wife hates phone calls. She prefers text. I prefer phone calls because I like verbal context. I want to hear the tone of their voice. I get it. And A lot
2: gets lost over text. Well, too,
0: too many people get wrapped around an axle about what they think someone's tone was on a text. I'm like, you could have called them and found out. Or if you really want to know, you can just FaceTime them. I Facetime people on a regular basis, which you know.
2: Oh, you're one of those. People. Oh,
0: I am one of those people, uh, Darcy. You're the worst. I'm the worst. <laughs> I I want to see your face. I want to read what you're doing, and then I want to hear the tone of your voice. <clears throat> uh, my and that's
2: that's when I hit decline because I've just mm, finished a workout, and I'm like, oh no, no, no way, no
0: way. I'm going to Facetime <laughs> you every week from now on, just to just to mess with you.
2: I can't wait.
1: Mm. You know, still, we're still working out the protocols. You know, I do a lot of early morning meetings and you can tell it's like, do I need to shave and put in my contacts before I take this meeting? Like, is this going to be on camera? Are we all going to have the, the teams of the zoom where everyone's cameras off and you know, what hour of the day? Do the cameras come on? So, or whatever? I don't know that we fully figured that out. So I always feel like that's a, you know, it's not just a, can I get from my bedroom to my, my office? That's pretty easy. But yeah, what state do I need to be in for that early morning meeting? Yeah, to be
0: I, um, yeah, so we require video for our internal meetings, but we run on entrepreneurial operating system, EOS. So we have far, far fewer meetings than the average bear. So it's a little bit of a different story. I started shaving at night explicitly because of that. By the way, so I used to shave in the morning. Now I shave before I go to bed. I know it sounds I crazy. To do
1: that as well. I so, so
0: I that. I actually changed my schedule so that when I wake up, and uh, you can tell I don't have to do a lot with hair. Rob, you do nothing with hair because you have no know, you have no hair. It
1: is growing out actually. I
0: noticed. I mean, time time to get the bick out and is. go bick it. You know, but it's it. You know, you can pull it off. By the way, I have been I have shaved this off completely when I was in the core at A and M, and it's a terrible sight. So can't I can't pull it off. Okay. We had a great discussion, and I want to end it there. We really, 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 this was fascinating. Darcy, your company fascinates me. It's, it's, it's behind so many sites like eBay. eBay does $12 billion. No, people don't talk about eBay anymore, but they did $12 billion of revenue. They're a huge company, and y'all are behind that. It's, it's awesome. So thank you for dedicating your career to insurance, and thanks for sharing your thoughts to us today on the uh, podcast.
2: Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it.
0: And uh, Rob, as always, again, you can check out his book soon. You can check out his book in Farsi, because I know there were a lot of you out there who listen to this show in English who are waiting for the Farsi translation. But no, that is really super cool. Iran is a really interesting place. And I mean, what, what an awesome deal. Get into Spanish, man. Get into Spanish. I've got, I've got a couple hundred people in Argentina who want to read your book in Spanish. I would love
1: to. Yeah. So if there's anyone out there listening that can help (laughs) or know someone that translates. Yes,
0: absolutely. Spanish is it. So with that, thank you again for joining us today. For this episode of the Insure Tech Geek podcast, uh, powered by JB Knowledge, it's all about technologies transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host, James Benham. This has been my co-host, Rob Galbraith, end of insurance.com. A big thanks to Jim Greenley, a podcast producer, and Karen Dalton, our creative producer. And thank you for joining us today. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride. Keep geeking out. Talk to you next time.